The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Nisha Kapoor. We'll be talking about her new book, Deport, Deprive, Extradite. As always, you can listen to the pod on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast. And you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you've been enjoying the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Nisha Kapoor is a lecturer in sociology at the University of York and is the co-editor of The State of Race. We spoke about her book, Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism, which is out now from Verso Books. So in the book, you begin by discussing several cases of, of extradition or attempted extradition of British citizens to the United States on terror-related charges in the aftermath of 9-11. With regard to the extradition of Lotfi Ricey, uh, you discuss how the legal wrangles over his extradition process um, sort of spurred on a, a, a process of, of making extradition easier, whereby US authorities wouldn't be required to present any sort of serious prima facie evidence in order to support an extradition request. Could you say something about the Lotfi Ricey case and, uh, and the general flimsiness of the justifications that are made for such extraditions? So Lopiorasi was the first person who was um, arrested in relation to the 9-11 attacks post, um, post 9-11. It was kind of, um, you know, within, within sort of, I think, about 11 days. Um, and so it his case um, prompted lots of uh, media attention. It was quite fitting that it was a, an Algerian national living in London who was being arrested in relation to attacks in the U.S., kind of um, symbolize that this is very much kind of going to extend sort of global policing relations in terms of how the US and the UK and its other allies were, were going to be working together. So the, the, the particular situation in his case was that he was arrested, he was detained um, for about a week before he was released on the basis of a lack of evidence. And then he was rearrested um, on the basis of an extradition request from the US. And uh, detained for a number of months while the US had to try and produce some evidence to support their case to to indict you know to, to extradite him um, and in that period in that intervening period they failed to do so but but had merely tried to indict him on the basis of um, some inaccuracies in an aviation form that he'd um, had to fill out for flight training uh, that he'd undertaken while in the US um, relating to fail- failure to disclose knee surgery that he'd had. And so their argument was that it were just these were just kind of holding charges that he was um, wanted in relation to questioning uh, in, in relation to his association with the 9-11 hijackers. And because of the judicial scrutiny that happens 
in his case at this time, the case for, you know, the, the British judge says, well, uh, there isn't insufficient evidence to extradite him. Um, the basis upon which he's being extradited is, or being called for extradition is, is problematic and the case falls apart. And this isn't suggest, to suggest that, you know, pre-9-11 everything was hunky-dory and, and fine. I, I also mentioned some other cases um, that begin in, in the 1990s. But what it does indicate is that extradition was a very kind of laborious process. It was very difficult um, to achieve at this time. And um, even though the, the impetus and the, the political um, kind of will to relax extradition arrangements prior to 9-11, it begins earlier, actually. You know, it, but the move to the war on terror obviously provides sort of sufficient justification for, for legitimating um, changes that are subsequently made, which means that um, a, an extradition treaty is passed between the US and the UK, whereby the US doesn't have to provide prima facie evidence, it just needs to invoke reasonable suspicion. And presumably this is true of a whole range of practices related to the war on terror, that it, um, that it serves to enable tendencies that, that pre-existed. I suppose torture is the most uh, obvious example. With regard to the extreme flimsiness of the, the evidence presented in these cases, um, I guess one way to think about that is to view it as evidence of a sort of uh, extreme subservience of the UK in relation to the United States that the, the UK government will happily surrender their own citizens to the law system of a foreign state um, because of the UK's junior role in the international system. Um, but you suggest that it's more complicated than that. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to do through the book is obviously connect, um, you know, to sort of take seriously the significance of this contemporary in terms of um, imperialist relations between the, you know, so thinking about sort of relations between the US and the UK as sort of allies in the war on terror, but of course, um, the longer sort of colonial histories, which helped to um, inform both the ways in which the, the sort of Islamophobia is, is, is able to kind of um, develop and expand in, in the way that it does post 9-11 um, you know, so so to think about but about both those kind of historical connections and then the the particularities of the contemporary, um, and and I guess what I'm trying to say, I think this probably comes particularly through, particularly in terms of resistance or some of the mobilisations um, against extradition, is that there is this kind of tendency to think about this sort of infringement of British sovereignty. Um, from the US, but actually extradition is working very much in, in, in terms of collaboration, right? So there's, there's sort of lots of agreements, all kinds of different levels between the US and the UK to an, so that works as much for Britain's benefit to extradite some of these individuals because it means that the evidence in these cases isn't open, doesn't have to be sort of open to judicial scrutiny. Uh, you know, it can, it can, can kind of, the, the problems can be moved elsewhere. But at the same time, obviously, the, the whole development of security, um, of securitization of the security apparatus of the state um, that's developing in Britain um, in relation to sort of counterterrorism is, is, is in direct connection to its, in, in, its foreign in, in invasions in Iraq, Afghanistan, um, you know, later sort of Libya, Syria, and so on. So, so it's to, to sort of think about the ways in which imperialist interventions come home 
to try and sort of think critically about the connections between imperialism and, and racism and um, and what that means then for the, the way in which we understand the security state. You say in the book that between 2003 and 2015, there were nine individuals extradited from the UK to the US on terror-related charges. And although it's not a very large number, it's it's these cases that you make the focus of the book, and 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 you use these cases to 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 illuminate um, some things about the treatment of Britain's Muslim population more generally. It's easy to imagine a criticism that that could be made of that approach. Um, you know, one could say that these are perhaps exceptional cases, and that they don't speak to the condition of British Muslims more broadly. Um, what would you say to that, and and why did you choose to make these cases the focus of your book? Um, I mean, I, I chose these cases for a number of reasons, really. I, I guess in the earlier stages of the war on terror, there was lots of discussion about the ways in which um, a number of the measures that were coming to light, that were being exposed by the press, that were being used, such as rendition and, you know, the, the use of the presence of black sites and the complicity of European countries in transferring individuals to these black sites subject to torture and, and so on, you know, were sort of these exceptional, um, were, were extrajudicial practices, were outside of the law, were not in keeping with um, European conventions on human rights and international conventions on human rights and so on, which um, Western countries officially or in terms of their external presence, at least, um, have to be seen to uh, be adhering to. And so one of the things I, I guess I wanted to do through looking at extradition cases was to think about actually the ways in which we need to sort of rephrase thinking about sort of the exception and acknowledge the ways in which race has uh, informed, you know, informs how our judicial practices and judicial systems work in sort of liberal societies, but to, to, to really expose the way in which the law um, is used to ultimately achieve the same ends, but without provoking the same kinds of resistance from liberal quarters, at least, right? So, um, you have um, very similar measures, um, you know, extradition sort of exposes the ways in which lots of those extrajudicial practices can be sort of bypassed officially, but still come to achieve um, similar outcomes or very comparable outcomes. So um, through judicial rationalizations, um, you know, you have the allowance of cases to, to proceed in U.S. court where these men have been subject to torture or evidence used against them has been um, obtained via torture or where there hasn't been access to any kind of legal support to enable these, these men to mount a, you know, a legal case where they haven't been privy to the evidence against them, where they've been held in lengthy periods of time in solitary confinement. Um, you know, so a whole host of, you know, transferred um, in in such in conditions that compare with sort of rendition, extraordinary rendition, and and so it, it was to, to just to kind of highlight the ways in which the law has been used to, to sort of normalise these practices really, so that they haven't provoked the same kind of resistance, and they've occurred quite quietly in relation to the elements of the war on terror that have that have sort of had much more attention um, th through the media and so on. So that's kind of why um, I focus on those cases. But in terms of thinking about these sort of extreme cases, I'd, I'd maybe call them extreme rather than exceptional, often there's a tendency. Um, so even when we think about sort of prevent, um, which, you know, is, is, the, is the kind of universal measure, if you like, for policing Muslims, 
and and being extended into sort of policing society in in terms of um, freedoms of expression and political dissent and and so on. Um, you know, there's a tendency to kind of put a cutoff point, if you like, and sort of say, well, okay, it's it's not okay mm-hmm. to surveil communities en masse. You know, there's a, we need to make a distinction between the majority of individuals and these few, this small group of real terrorists. And I guess what I'm trying to do or to argue in the book is to sort of make a more of a sort of abolitionist argument, which is that you know, if we want to be against authoritarian measures, then we need to be against them in the name of anyone. And what's legitimated through these these kind of messier cases, and actually there's huge injustices in these cases, as I kind of um, allude to, but what's legitimated in these cases, which aren't, you know, which, which don't have a broader appeal, um, you know, they're not kind of uh, the good migrant or the, the sort of um, positively racialized sex segments of social outcasts what's legitimated through these cases is obviously instrumental because um it, you know it puts these measures on the books and it changes the culture of how we come to understand things like citizenship or uh sort of justice or due process or um human rights right what human rights are and, and who has access to them so as you say human rights organizations have uh focused quite heavily on practices such as extraordinary rendition um and you contrast that with their comparative neglect of, of technically legal, but, you know, sort of manifestly unjust extraditions. Um, what do you attribute the relative lack of concern regarding the latter cases to? Uh, and, and what do you think it says about the human rights community and about the liberal political tradition more generally? So there has been um, protests against the practices of extraordinary rendition and its progression to rendition to justice. Um, I think, you know, and, and, and to be fair, there has been uproar or um, protests by human rights organisations against extradition practices. Um, I think the problem is that, well, I mean, so in terms of the the, the rendition to justice dissent often sort of mainstream uh, sort of human rights, liberal human rights arguments has been to say um, that we need to, you know, not make, not allow for exceptional justice systems, that they need to be, that these people need to be tried within the civilian justice system. And the problem with that is that we know that the civilian justice systems have already been, you know, are um, hugely problematic in lots of ways and have been, and sort of terrorism cases have have slotted in very easily to uh, into, for example, the you know the U.S. kind of justice systems, which allow for have allowed for individuals to be held in detention for two to three years in solitary confinement before they're even you know getting to trial, which obviously limits the um, ability of of um, individuals held in terrorism um, held for terrorism offences to, to mount any kind of defence, but. The other thing is even, and and this is the thing about sort of extradition, is that often when protests have been made against extradition practices, there's a reluctance to then name terrorism cases and to sort of see terrorism cases as the exception. Um, So, you know, these practices aren't okay for general people who are criminalized under sort of general criminal law. But, you know, terrorism is always the sticking point, is always the more difficult case. Um... And I, and I guess what I'm kind of arguing is that it's terrorism cases that have provided, you know, that provide um, 
that always become the, the sort of point upon which these disciplinary practices are legitimized or, or sort of okayed or, or, or justified. And then, of course, taken to new lengths in, you know, relatively recently with the sort of rise of, of the far right. Regarding the historical emergence of the figure of the of the terrorist, um, you describe it as being coterminous with the developing hegemony of liberalism from the late eighteenth century onwards, um, and that to to some extent that the idea of the terrorist is um, is necessary in order to to other um, subaltern populations and and to deny the rights that consistently applied liberal principles would, would seem to have bestowed on colonial subjects. Would that be a, a correct characterization? I think I'm arguing that um, there's a particular genealogy to the language of terrorism where it's been used to demonize and to denigrate and to kind of trivialize all kinds of uh, forms of anti-colonial resistance. So if if you trace, you know, past its kind of initial um, invocations in, in relation, you know, close to sort of French Revolution, there's a, a sort of shift in its use and its meaning. And it's used, it comes to be used specifically and continuously in, in different ways and in different guises, but, um, you know, in, in relation to sort of dismissing, um, as a way of dismissing anti-colonial resistance in its various forms. So at home in terms of Athenians and, um, you know, Irish resistance, uh, to, 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 to mainland Britain, um, you know, in India, in Kenya, in Malaya and so on, Malaysia. I mean, what, what I want to be careful about in, in thinking about sort of its use in the contemporary is not to suggest that everything that gets labeled as terrorism is necessarily, you know, this kind of progressive right on, politics uh, or, or you know not to suggest that um you know we we don't need to think or want to think critically about political violence but that um it's its use as a sort of discourse is has it has this kind of colonial um genealogy and is very effective for um lumping a whole host of different kinds of political violence together um, you know, to, to, to sort of um, do more to sort of the opposite of kind of illuminating any kind um, or sort of allowing us to understand any kind of um, the roots of any kind of political problem and instead sort of just lump it all in, um, in some kind of irrational violence. I suppose the uh, the case of Britain's war in Malaya is quite striking in that regard, isn't it? With the um, the insurgents, Britain was fighting uh, labelled uh, CTs, communist terrorists, uh, I, I believe, to to just exclude political legitimacy to the to the soldiers that um, the British were were fighting. Right, right, right. And you have this, yeah, con- this continuously kind of re um, rehashed in in different ways and in different moments, and of course the use of uh, various cultural um, formats and forms to help sort of reinforce these ideas. You know, now we have kind of Hollywood films. We have the various programs that that come on depicting kind of security services in one way and um, Muslims in another. And you know, they get rehashed in all kinds of um, in, in all kinds of media formats, which come to sort of cement ideologically the the discourses of the media and sort of dominant political factions. 
You've already touched on this, but you you talk in the book about how the counterinsurgency policing of the colonial era has effectively been deployed at home and and, and that the imperial experience of the British has has influenced uh, American styles of counterterror policing. Um, One precedent for this might be the Algerian war in the 1950s, nearly 60s, and and the way in which the French policed their North African population in France in, in that period. I wonder if you could say something about that movement of, of counterinsurgency practices from the colonial context to the metropoles. One of the things I try to do in the book is to draw the connections between sort of contemporary counterterrorism policing through the war on terror and um, the sort of colonial genealogies of this. And so particularly in the British context, um, Ireland is critical and crucial for allowing the development of counterinsurgency techniques that can be produced or delivered in ways that seem attentive to democratic norms of policing. And that's because Ireland has this sort of inside-outside character, right? It's it's part of the home territory in some sense, but it's also a, a colonial subject too. Right, exactly. And... Um, and yeah, so it has this kind of ambivalent position. And whereas in some parts of empire, you know, it's just kind of all out military army force. And of course, this is connected to the ways and the different ways in which different colonial subjects are racialized, right? So the more kind of savage or barbaric the population is racialized to be, the kind of greater legitimation or justification for all that brutality. In Ireland, it's always a mix. And, um, so, the, so the police force, the so there's a kind of infiltration of military techniques into the sort of civilian police force much more. But there's also the development of or the of the a sort of model of counterinsurgency, which makes use of uh, civil, social, and civil institutions to do the policing as much as the police itself, right? So. You know, so, so you have kind of the use of social services or equivalent, you know, kind of welfare elements of the state um, uh, being used to help enforce various forms of counterinsurgency. Um, and it's this that's really been kind of critical for the models of counterinsurgency that have been, that, you know, that, that Britain has sort of led the development of um, in the sort of post 9 11 context and that. Models that have been then used or employed in, you know, in other parts of the of the world as well, in other parts of the West, you know, have really learnt kind of from. So Britain sort of styles itself on being the historical, you know, on its expertise historically of counterinsurgency, um, and you know has has kind of played that. So it's you know it's not the sort of contemporary forerunner, but it it was historically, and it's it it has kind of marked itself with that sort of expertise. And so we see, like, through Prevent, for example, um, one of the reasons it's been so powerful is because it's actually, um, well, you know, it's, it's preventative policing, it's preemptive um, policing, but it's 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 relying on elements of the state or elements of state, you know, state institutions that we would normally think of as providing sort of care uh, the care elements um, for the population, education, youth services, um, social services, and so on, um, you know, are very much kind of key. Education is the biggest referral to prevent, um, have, have been very key in sort of the way in which counterinsurgency um, is, is being sort of delivered. How would you characterize the effect that the PREVENT program has had on British Muslims? Huge. I mean, I mean, it's, 
both devastating, but also out of this comes comes resistance, right? So, I mean, it's it's never totalizing, but I think one of the one of the things that's most significant about sort of contemporary forms of counterterrorism through Prevent, and one of the, one of the things that's so particular about Prevent that's different from, say, you know, earlier forms of um, policing in, in Northern, Northern Ireland and, and so on, is that it has relied on surveilling children, right? It, is it, it, it's big sort of target population has been children and young people. So we think about the generational impacts of that are huge. The generational impacts of the counterinsurgency of, of the moment are, you know, are long lasting. If we think it was sort of post seven seven that sort of prevent really starts to take off, we've got kind of thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years of 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 this of so you know young people now coming of age have not known anything different other than um, you know constantly being aware of being surveilled or scrutinised by teachers, by community workers, knowing, for example, of um, informants in the communities in which they grow up, knowing that their mosques are being kind of surveilled. That, that one's whole kind of way of life um, or, you know, it, it, it becomes so sort of normalized that one has to be aware of what one is saying, who one is speaking to, things you can and cannot say, where you're going to have uh, or where you can have open political discussions about certain things. Um, you know, the, the kind of psychological impact is, is really quite significant. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, we can think about what that means um, internally within Muslim communities, we can, you know, we can think about the broader significance of what that means for what kind of what kind of possibilities there are for true sort of democratic society that we might sort of hope to strive for, um, you know, in the kind of current fights against the, you know, the move towards the right, far right. Yeah, I mean, just just hearing that description, um, uh, you know, as you as you say, that sense of um, you don't know who you can say what to, and and that sense of of living under constant surveillance. Um, I mean, you know, you could easily be describing the situation of people living in a totalitarian state, and um, uh, I suppose that just demonstrates how different populations can have dramatically different experiences in, in what are ostensibly liberal democratic societies. One of the things um, that's often said is that uh, this kind of the majority population only realizes the full extent of um, power of the sort of state as a whole in these kind of authoritarian settings when, you know, with a jolt, when something kind of big happens. We can, you know, there's perhaps been a one or two incidents where, you know, there's been mass media outrage at, um, you know, when the the sort of extent of database surveillance comes to be, you know, is, is exposed. Um, but actually, the, the it's the social outcasts, it's the the stigmatized or marginalized, excluded populations that you know, know have known, um, you know, fully aware for quite some time, um, actually, what this means because it's in those spaces where these where these practices are cultivated. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. What's what's kind of interesting about this current moment is that. Uh, practices that are sort of being unleashed at the moment have been in cultivation and in germination for some time you know and ironically sort of post brexit post perhaps to a lesser extent in the but to some extent as well kind of post trump 
but certainly kind of post-Brexit, is that there has been very little discussion about the role that Islamophobia has played in, you know, in the in the kind of current state that we find ourselves in. But it, you know, it was, was so instrumental to to the vote, um, to, you know, those last couple of weeks in, in terms of the possibilities of Turkey joining the EU um, and what that would mean. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, there's, a, there's a kind of amnesia, I think, in terms of public consciousness around um, around how all these things sort of come together and sort of explode at a certain point. Presumably one of the effects of the PREVENT programme has been to have a chilling effect on on the willingness of people to protest Western intervention abroad um, since the that, that notion of, of, of the good Muslim seems to either be someone who is, is patriotic or is uh, simply silent on the question of British foreign policy. I think that there's a whole mixture of reactions. Of course, there is still some... Um, you know, we can think about university spaces as being one key space where some dissent has continued to play out or as, as being a relatively safe or a protected space where uh, some discussion around, um, you know, responses to war and so on have been allowed. But, you know, we know now that in the last counterterrorism bill and the one that's currently in process, um, that, that even, you know, that even the even these spaces are being increasingly criminalized. But, I mean, I, I think the issue is that, yeah, on, on the one hand, the possibilities of sort of speaking out of dissent, um, of, of kind of having these sort of political discussions that would be much better had in the open where we could have a kind of more productive debate around kind of different possibilities, around discussing kind of complex political events and histories, obviously takes a, a kind of less productive form when these discussions are, are sort of moved uh, into closed spaces. But there's also, these things are always have much bigger implications. So there's, again, it kind of normalizes a sort of culture over political dissent more, more generally. So you have environmental protesters who are being criminalized under counterterrorism legislation. You have anti-immigration protesters being criminalized under this legislation. There's all kinds of different factions of political dissent that are being uh, criminalized and under this legislation. So, it, you know, it's having a, a much broader impact. You know, this is kind of one key, key facet um, of the sort of encroachment, you know, of the a sort of huge assault on any kind of democratic um, process or uh, true sort of uh, democratic kind of decision-making society that we might hope to have. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening.